Hello and welcome to Art Juice. This is honest, generous and humorous conversations that will feed your creative soul and get you thinking with me, Alice Sheridan. And today I am joined by a very special guest. Um, we have actually met in person, which I'll tell you about a little bit later, but we often get requests for people to come on the podcast and I'm afraid usually the answer is no. This one dropped into my inbox and I was immediately intrigued by the idea, by this uh, person's history and the story of where he had um, arrived at this point. So I am talking today with Damien Dibbon. He is an internationally acclaimed author, books that have been translated into 27 languages, published in 40 countries. He's written a series for children called The History Keepers and a, a previous novel called Tomorrow. And the route that he's arrived at through starting off with design to the culmination of this new novel, which has just come out in paperback called The Colour Storm, which is really intriguing and I'm thoroughly enjoying. I just think this is going to be a fantastic conversation and we're going to see where it goes. So theatre designer, actor, screenwriter and best-selling author who also still makes things, Damien Dibbon. Welcome to the podcast. Good morning. How are you? Good morning. What an introduction. Thank you very much. <laughs> so we're going to be talking a little bit about this book. I want people to know where this is coming from. It, first of all, can I say it has got an absolutely beautiful cover. It is. It's, it's ravishing, I think. It, ravishing is a great word. And uh, words like ravishing kind of come into the book quite a lot. But it is, it's called The Colour Storm. And I've kind of called it, it's almost like an artistic thriller set in Renaissance Venice, very much identified with chief protagonist, who is an artist called Barbarelli, uh, called Zorzo, who is successful and yet also struggling, right? I should say he's he's commonly known as Giorgione. Many people will know who Giorgione is. So is he a real person? Oh, yeah, yeah. He's yeah. real. Ah, oh, I knew that lots of, obviously, the, you know, because Michelangelo makes appearance, Titian is in there. Yeah. You know, it's really kind of set contextually. And I think the insights into the different, the, the practice in Venice of artists at the time was lovely, but also how it made this connection with modern day artists and like, oh, where's where's the next sale going to be coming from? So Giorgione you know, uh, very sadly sort of died way too young, uh, kind of in his early 30s. Uh, and he was actually originally a pupil of Bellini, as so many artists were in, in Venice at the time. Um, and he himself uh, taught Titian, with whom there was kind of a bit of a tussle uh, in the kind of George Ernie's final years. But he was an absolutely vital link you know some people say that he he you know he was possibly the first person who painted a landscape uh you know in its own terms um he was certainly a, a, a sort of very impressionistic painter and it was all about atmosphere and mood and obviously color um so he was a sort of you know he's now looked on as a vital link and actually part of the inspiration came from seeing uh, this Giorgione exhibition, I think probably the only one that's ever been mounted at uh, the Royal Academy seven years ago, um, just in their smaller space. I just thought, oh, why do I know so little? There's, mm -hmm. He has one, this very famous painting called The Tempest, which I'm sure you've seen, which is in the Academia of Venice, um, which is kind of, no one really fully understands, but there's this sort of summer sky ribbon by this bolt of lightning and then there's 
in the foreground there's a kind of naked lady and a kind of a, a, either a soldier or some kind of country gentleman uh, on the other side um no one quite knows if it's allegorical or what but it's it's mostly about the atmosphere of, of the place and the landscape um, so yes just just to, to to place it uh and i really wanted just to tell his story and, and sort of expose him a bit more obviously this is a sort of fictionalized version of it yeah um, but it's all based around you know the little we know about him uh but which is very little you know basically where he was born and, and the fact you know he died in venice young probably of the plague yeah he was just a sort of a, a quiet revolutionary figure in the art world in art history and he he goes on this quest to find a mythical new pigment so are we going to come back to that and talk about yeah. about color and the story and like where all the ideas came from um but first of all i want to uh go back to like how your life has evolved to this point because I always think that that's fascinating because we're always existing from a space of where we are now like yeah. we know what's yeah. come behind us we never yeah. really know what's ahead and this like you've even mentioned it already you went to an exhibition you saw this painter's work and thought hang on there's something more in here I, I need to follow this breadcrumb trail and your um career so far has been exactly that it's been a breadcrumb you know trail of all sorts of different things which I think is really interesting because so many artists feel that they have to put themselves into a box summarize what they do really clearly and you've clearly managed to you know break through all of that so accompanying this book there has been an exhibition of adapted furniture how will you how would you describe that yeah, I think that's a, a a good way of putting it. I mean, there there's everything uh, in the exhibition um, was uh, inspired by the book in some form. With its 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 obviously its themes of of kind of color of how the kind of workshops worked uh, in that time of geometry and just the sort of general grandeur of Venice and the excitement and the color and the and and the sort of theatricality of Venice at that time. So all these pieces were inspired by that. Um, and yeah, I went back to my very, you know, cause I, I mean, I'll, I'll give you a, a kind of cleaner timeline, but uh, you know, I started at art school um, actually in design, um, theater design, uh, and, but I did, I kind of branched out a lot. Uh, but uh, we were always making things and obviously if you're if you're a theatre designer you, you you know you have to be very familiar with a with a drill and a saw and so on and so forth so I've always been building things building furniture uh, and on this occasion I just decided to come back to it um, uh, and so I kind of use the pieces I'll use an element that I find for example there's one piece where I start, I, I got these amazing kind of brass door plates and I uh, I tried to find the right piece of furniture on which to display them and mount them. And I mounted them on, onto this kind of chest and then inside is all lined in, in silk and velvet with this kind of incredible embroidered panel at the back of it. So I'll just put all these elements together uh, but usually starting with one one kind of inspiring uh, element and often there'd be things that required uh, a lot of you know that a lot of work has gone into so 
I've taken some bits of carving, you know, carved wood or, or sort of silk embroidered work uh, or bead work or something like that. And I've really tried to sort of showcase that sort of incredible sort of industry and craft uh, and, you know, illuminate some aspect of the book while I was doing it. And if you're listening and intrigued, you can see um, all of this work. There's a, a special website for it, which we'll put in the show notes, which is damiendibbonfurniture.com, which is separate from your author website. So you can go and have a look at all of these pieces. And yeah, you're right. There was, there's a very, um, uh, sense of preciousness and this is where we met because this exhibition I said if we're going to talk on the podcast let's come let's come and meet in in real time um, and I came along and made a fantastic entrance by smashing a glass of champagne all over the floor which is always a good start I think um, but you know it's a lovely collection but it, it made me think you know of how we get these ideas and which come first and giving ourselves the ability to branch off and say, yeah, it's okay to do this. Is that something that you've ever struggled with? Um, no, I mean, I sometimes think I perhaps should struggle with it, but I mean, I've always been interested in all these kind of branches of of creating things, really, and they're, they're all part of the same thing for me. I grew up in central London, mostly around the Gloucester Road area. Both my father and my stepfather were not not strictly speaking artists but sort of definitely had artistic sensibilities my brother and I just spent our afternoons or just going to all the local museums which you know obviously yeah. happened to be the science museum the natural history museum the VNA and it was somehow I was just entranced as a child by these places and everything kind of excited me. You know, I was just as excited in the Science Museum as I was in, mm. in the VNA. You know, learning about the incredible people who've come before us, all the sort of revolutions in art and in science and in natural history or whatever it might be. I feel that just kind of motivated me throughout my whole life uh, uh, to be interested in everything. I definitely don't have a problem kind of moving uh, between ways of expressing myself I mean I think I make a bit of a problem for myself because no one ever quite knows you know where to uh <laughs> which box to put me as it were I wouldn't really have it any other way I was just talking to someone yesterday about the, the term historical fiction for example which I have a real problem with you know because I I kind of came from mo the movie world and you know in the in movies you yeah, there are some films you call period films, but, you know, something like kind of Titanic or Lord of the Rings or whatever it might be. I mean, it's yeah. just a film. Um, yeah, it's just a story, and, isn't it? It's just yeah. a way of... Yeah. I, I sort of have a problem with this sort of pigeonholing of, you know, oh, this is this is historical fiction, but it to me it's just fiction. It's just a great yeah. story. Um, the fact that it takes place in a different time and place is, you know, uh, is, is just another thing. Well, it's interesting that you do still come across it. And I think in something, you know, like the publishing world or any sort of big organisation, um, you know, often we look for shortcuts and labels to put on things. But I think we're often led by this. Uh, we have to be led by a curiosity, don't we? And, you know, there is no doubt that those kind of museums and having that at your fingertips in a place like London is 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 endless. And this kind of um, ability to feed yourself as artists you know it doesn't all 
you know, yes, there's a lot that comes from within us, but it has to be in response from those sort of the triggers and the things that we react to and the the ability to say yes or no to things and to follow that intuition. So just going back to like when you were doing, so you were doing theatre design. Yes. But there was something about that that was not quite right. So what was the first hop? I basically went back to college. I went to drama school and and then was an actor, uh, which had always been my real first love, you know, because I I was a very successful sort of actor at school, famously in the school anyway. I was in this Pinter production and Pinter actually came because his his stepson was was, uh, at the school and... Uh, he saw my uh, performing, you know, this is when I was 15 or something, and, and basically kind of pushed me into, like, trying to move to the RSC. And it, it didn't work out, and I, I don't know um, why I didn't kind of go into it originally, though, of course, now I, I'm, I kind of, I'm sort of almost ashamed of my brief acting career. I mean, not, I did quite a lot of stuff, but I... I I couldn't bear the lack of control and I couldn't right. bear the kind of the exposing nature of it. And, uh, but it was really, it was really the lack of control. It was, it was the the lack of control over my own destiny. Um, yeah. And if you're someone who wants to create things, you know, as an actor, you need to be employed to work on a specific thing. And if you, you know, and we all know that just comes down to luck at the end of the day. Yeah, there's some heavy um, gatekeepers in there, aren't there? Yeah, Which, you I know, is just inevitable. I didn't want luck to be, uh, you know, the thing responsible. And also, I think, you know, you, you have this thing of wanting to, like, leave something more solid. Um, so I had started writing screenplays. I've always had these quite big entrances into the world. I, but my first screenplay, there was, like, a bidding war, and it sold uh, to Miramax, and... Um, uh just about every famous director uh was attached to it at, at, at some point um and that kind of led and that film has never been made by the way um oh. but it, it was one of those famous screen you know there's this whole list i think it's called the blacklist which it was on so for years of famous scripts that never got made but it did lead to sort of 10 years amazing work in hollywood and um screenwriting but again Towards the end of that period, it was the it was the lack of control that sort of drove me into writing books. Because as a screenwriter, um, I mean, you you probably know, you know, any production company will develop up to ten times more scripts than they'll ever have they'll ever be able to make, just because you know producing a film is so complicated you've got to kind of have all these stars aligning I just kept being very unlucky a lot of the things I was most proud of I wasn't credited for or things I was credited for you know were the things that I have been slightly removed from and you're very much at the early stages as a screenwriter at the time I had been been sent kind of various books you know with a view to maybe adapting them for the screen and and it was then I thought well actually maybe I should write a just book just write the book yeah uh, <laughs> I can imagine that with the screenwriting because it's almost like you know you've you've been the inception you've given birth to it and then it becomes overtaken by everything else that is that is beyond you and I think one of the satisfactions as a obviously endlessly creative person is that it is a little bit of the completion element of it 
the beginning, yeah. the inquiry, the what changes yeah. in the middle, and the satisfaction is 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 the finish. Or, or is that right? Maybe that's not right for you. How, how do you find what element is the satisfaction of the finish or the, the process of going through it? I, mean, the thing is, all... yeah, I think you are right in that because, you know, as a, 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 um, a screenplay is basically a sort of a set of very elaborate instructions. Um, it's, you know, it's written in a particular way. It's not literature as such. Um, it's 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 sort of a set of instructions which then you know up to 200 people then come in and interpret uh in their own different ways in their own departments you know particularly obviously the director and, and the actors will interpret and and it, it you know it's almost more the starting point yeah it's um but you're not really seeing it through to the end so when i first started writing books it was like oh okay so to me in my head it was like producing a finished film in yeah. a way I just that's what I absolutely loved and the thing is what's fantastic about a book is yeah it could then go on to have a life as a movie um but it will always be there it will always be this sort of solid fully realized finished thing it's as far away as the kind of acting uh, you know the ephemeral acting uh, world as, as you can imagine it the visions kind of in its entirety which sounds like I'm like a megalomania and I I just well I, no I think we all have that control I think anybody who creates I think you have to have that desire for control over what you do um is that a megalomaniac now? I think it's an essential part of it. I'm, I, I think the relationship with how it's consumed is different, yeah. you know. And and I think that's an interesting thing because because you, you put a lot into it, then it goes out, and, and books can have very personal impacts on people. And yeah, you can you can see that sometimes in the reviews, but you also just have to have this trust that your relationship with it is when it's at its stage where it's complete. It's mm. complete. Is it, is it hard to say goodbye to a book when you finished or are you glad to see the back of it? <laughs> no, uh, no, it's definitely not hard to say goodbye. But again, it, it always exists. Um, and I think just just the, the knowledge of its existence or when you kind of just suddenly glance, you know, you, you might see a copy of it here or there. Yeah. Um, and it, it's it's always a very satisfying thing. I mean, it's... Yeah. It's a thing people dream of doing for a good reason, I think, because it, it's it's just an encapsulation of, you know, whatever is happening in your mind and all of your experiences that you've had, you know, it's 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 all there. I mean, to be honest, also, it's very nice, like when I was a screenwriter, I mean, my friends, my kind of close friends and family, you know, I was forever having to say to them you yeah, know what I'm doing is really sort of serious I mean it just it exists ephemeral. you know it is you know they no one ever understood why scripts kind of got developed for years and a book is something you can literally share with your nearest and dearest and and they can understand what you're doing I don't know why that's important but it seems to be some strange reason I get that totally. I think there's something about, you know, a tangible object and it exists in a painting. But, you know, for me, that was one of the reasons why I moved away from design, where, where it started to become, you know, very digital and, you know, visual and screen based. But I really miss that kind of tactile relationship with 
bringing something into existence and I think it's a yeah. it's a it's a fundamental part of it but you know also wrapped up with the the idea development and where do you want to go and 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 breathing life into things so if we go back to the idea for for this book because it's you know it's called the color storm where did the title come from um do, do was... you do you brainstorm lots of titles yeah. did, did it always exist no on this this one the, it was actually it was originally called the colorist um which i quite liked it kind of had a you know it it immediately made you think of the sort of the leading person as it were um but um actually penguin had an issue just just with the kind of google searchiness of it that it was essentially what came up was like you know people who dye people's hair as opposed to <laughs> Love it. Like bang back down to earth. You know, you could have all these fantastic ideas. No, we're, we're dictated by weird things that come up by Google searches. Love well, it. Well, I know, <laughs> and it, you can't underestimate the importance of things like that. And I, I agree with them. Um, and this, yeah, it, it, you know, I wanted something that was kind of, you know, sort of hinted at the sort of the drama and the the nature of it. And it actually, the color storm it's described in the first chapter, it actually uh is used to describe this age where this great change was happening in society um uh but also you know uh the sort of interest in color within works of art was kind of what you know it was the biggest sort of you know explosion that there'd ever been you know oil paint to a certain extent um was a kind of relatively new uh phenomenon certainly in in italy they'd used it the northern european artists yeah kind of 100 odd years before but it was still relatively new in italy um and of course what an oil could do was make color really sort of come alive in a way that ghetto painting or painting yeah and frescoes is always yeah. frescoes are always a kind of quite uh muted and um Venice was the place where the color colors arrived first. Um, uh, so, kind of lapis lazuli, you know, ultramarine was was the considered the star color of the Renaissance, and you know, it kind of was featured in the most prominent part of any particular painting. And and lapis um, would have come through Venice first uh, uh, from Afghanistan. And it was only found in this one place, and it was incredibly valuable, uh, and it was just sort of you know, ravishing. <laughs> so, um, so this book is imagining there's a color even more incredible uh, than there's a mineral even more incredible than, than lapis, which is called Prince Orient in the book, and it comes from this somewhere mysterious and exciting. So essentially, all the painters of the era, and this was an era of, of a kind of fantastic collection of painters, Leonardo, Michelangelo, Raphael, in Venice, Bellini and Giorgione, obviously, and, and, and Titian, um, all of them essentially uh, converge on Venice in search of this colour. The, the thriller element is who is going to be the first to find it and, how, and to what lengths will they go? It's not an exaggeration to say that it, it could make your career. Um, yeah. Um, especially if you've got a large amount of it because you, you, your name will be forever kind of linked with this kind of revolutionary colour. It, it really made me think about 
you know, the preciousness of colour, like, you know, the scene where he's thinking about painting the, the, the portrait and there's the ring on the hand and that makes the difference because it's just kind of, it, you know, it's set off against the whole of the rest of the painting. And I think, you know, we do that in paintings now, you know, you have just a touch of colour somewhere mm. and, you know, you have to think about how it sits within the context of the whole but the whole description of the effort that goes into the studio process, the assistance, the bit where they're talking about Michelangelo, where he's painting um, uh, frescoes on the scene. And yeah. they're like, oh, he's always grumpy because wouldn't you be if you were up a scaffold, always being terrified it was going to collapse? You know, yeah. it really it really makes you think about what we totally take for granted. Yeah, today. absolutely. I mean, I, I, I love, you know, I loved learning about how the workshops worked and, and the life of the painter and how incredibly grueling and physical it was. And, you know, that the, the Sistine Chapel is a kind of great example because, um, you know, he was up this scaffold, you know, a lot he on is. his own uh, for like nearly four years. Yeah. So you've got paint dripping in your eye constantly. You've got this fear of the sort of scaffolding collapsing or, or sort of coming off it um you don't know even whether what you're painting is going to read from the ground you know you you have the, the skill sort of required yeah the nerve required um you know and obviously logistical things like going to the loo and things like that I mean it, it was just sort of a, a horror you know it would have absolutely exhausted anyone um, but also I was just so fascinated by how the work, you know, because a lot of the famous painters obviously had their own workshops and they could have up to 50 or so apprentices working for them, you know, all with a very particular skill or, you know, they're, they're almost like film studios, um, you know, so everyone coming together with these particular skills all to realise this one kind of marvellous uh, painting and it would have just been incredibly exciting I mean if you can just imagine before movies and television or even photography um, suddenly this scene painted in these incredibly vivid lifelike colours of kind of intense drama I mean they would have it would have been extraordinary to to behold them yeah and compared to what else people were visually seeing I mean you know colour wasn't it wasn't prevalent for most people you know in the clothes they were wearing and decoration of the home everything was very you know natural possibly quite dirty you know it, it wasn't there and it existed as a huge contrast whereas you know today actually we're bombarded like literally bombarded with yeah. colour and visual onslaught yeah. all the time and so I think sometimes art plays a very different role in that today. Art maybe today needs to give us a space to pause and reflect a little bit, whereas art then would have been, as you say, this moment of breathtaking grandeur that re uh, literally did awe-inspiring take your breath away because it was in such contrast to what people were experiencing in their everyday life. For you, in terms of how you enjoy not the making of art but the um absorbing of it the enjoyment of it yeah. where does that come into your life I mean I'm just uh I just take it all in I'm theatre galleries films I really like everything you know yeah I, there's always brilliant people behind it there's always a vision of sorts um and I'm I'm just I think I'm just a consumer I love it all I love any kind of entertainment of, uh, 
which is how I view it. Is that what you meant? Yeah, and it really, it, it's interesting because you, you you seem to me like, you know, you're a real open book and a complete sponge and you really thrive from having a lot of different sort of stimulation. And sometimes some of the problem with that comes in, okay, we also do need a degree of commitment here. No. Like nothing, nothing is going to get created without at some point focusing and going, okay, there are all of these things and all of these ideas and right. all of these things yeah. I love. And at some point, I kind of have to pick one, knuckle down. So I'm interested in the process of where you go from. Okay, well, there's an idea here that I need to needs to unfurl, needs to explore things that get left along the wayside, and maybe also your actual process. I remember when I first started writing, I read a great book by uh, called The Creative Habit by Twyla Tharp, who's actually a choreographer. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know. And it's just really interesting, you know, her process of like, so she had, when she has a project, she she puts everything related to it in a box. She has a box. So right. that might be physical things, you know, things that stimulate ideas. Yeah. And I'm just wondering your process of developing the ideas. Do you have something visual with that? And are you quite good at that element of, okay, this is a nine to five job. I knuckle down. What, what does the day look like when you're writing yeah, no, I am. I am really. Um, I'm. I'm. I'm very good at, at focusing. Now, I mean, I guess novel writing is my day job, as it were, and uh, everything else is slightly on the side. My main focus will always be that. My day is quite sort of boringly regular. You know, I. I I'm not a great morning person, but I'll. I usually start writing kind of. 11-ish and then go on till about six. I I mean, I compare it to someone sort of making a kind of marble sculpture, you know, you, you're, you're sort of bashing away and it's quite monotonous and it's quite hard and it's sort of uh, quite boring sometimes because, you know, the exciting part in a way is, is having, is at the beginning and the end, you know, the beginning, yeah. you're having the idea, you're forming the idea it's all sort of taking shape and you know it's very very exciting um more or less when you when when you're kind of happy with how it is in your head um you then start the kind of laborious process of getting what's or you know what you were excited about what was in your head that general sweep of it onto paper or you know onto a computer and then the end part is also exciting when you're sort of polishing it and doing the fine tuning and editing and then obviously it's tremendously exciting when the artwork comes through and and, and all of that but yeah the, the the middle part is you know a year or more of quite painstaking sort of meticulous equal to me to sort of a sculpture chipping away wood or, or marble there's a fantastic phrase that is that is often applied to paintings, which is, you know, start like a stonemason, finish like a jeweler, which, yeah. you know, is is very good, you know, taking you through that broad approach right down to that, that exactly that polishing. And I think we often have that that messy middle where actually you're trying to find the form of a yeah. painting and what you want to say. And often it shifts as well. Does that yeah. does that happen in writing too, or, do, or are you too committed to the story to, to be able to shift like that? So I think there there is must be a very different something in your makeup that allows you to stay in that space for that period of time without getting almost those short 
serotonin hips and right, satisfaction. Yeah. Where, where does that that must come so in? You do you get it? You get those those hits just from you know the day to day thing. You know if you write a kind of a scene that just fits really works and yeah. kind of almost takes over itself. Yeah. And, um, you know that's that's very exciting. Um, but some days aren't like that. They yeah. they're, they're they're genuinely quite hard. I mean, I don't mind that. I don't mind the the length of time. I do enjoy the sort of monolithic nature of of the uh, process. It really feels like you're you're creating something solid. Obviously, the the you know the problem you occasionally have is that you know if you imagine you've sculpted something uh, or you've 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 carved something and actually the arm or something is in completely the wrong place, yeah. you you practically have to start again. Uh, and I have had that a few times. I mean, you can't, you you try and sort of clean it up, but essentially you, you almost have to get a new block and and, yeah. and start from scratch. And that, yeah, that can be hard to deal with sometimes. From my film screenwriting days, screenplay is only a hundred pages, you know, so every kind of line has to matter, you know, has to kind of forward. The story. That's quite good discipline. I can imagine that that's quite a good thing to be able to transfer over into. It is. I mean, sometimes I'm, you know, I'm too, you know, I read about other writers who say, you know, I start a story and I don't know where it's going. And I go, oh, my God, how do you do that? I mean, I, I just, <laughs> I'd be terrified of doing that. But it's not, it's not how I kind of learned. Um, I didn't really learn that way. But ultimately, if if it is, if if you find a story is pulling you away from your goal, you, you have to at least kind of give it a moment, see what well, maybe my subconscious or whatever is is on the case and has yeah. decided that it something would to investigate. Um, do so, do you yeah. do it visually? Do you do it like with a big pin board and like character things and work down work out what's happening in each chapter first and. Or, or, or is it all I, done? No, I don't do pinboard. I mean, I, I, I do, I do sometimes write it down, but I almost never refer to those mm. notes because I, I just remember it. And, yeah. You know, my my theory is, you know, if it's and my I always I you know my great believer in the work that your mind does. You know, when you're not actually thinking about it, yeah. you know, when you're asleep or doing other things. Yeah. Uh, and I just think so much work is done by your subconscious and, and um, you, you know, you you just then come to work and sort of put into action uh, what you've been what you've been thinking and all the important stuff always stays in your head. Yeah, uh, and- I love that feeling you know, when you do something and it comes out and often it relates back to something that you maybe you did a while ago and, and it just reappears again and you think, oh, that's where that was. So thank you. That's where that came from. And it, that is a, a pretty magic moment, I think, as part of the creative process. So when you were writing, when at what point did the furniture making project, was, was that yeah. always hand in hand or did that? Kind no, no, I, I, um, I had been, I'd moved mostly down to West Sussex and there were all these like auction houses nearby and I started going to buy things and just, I just see these sort of beautiful things that was not expensive and I think, wow, I'd love that. I don't know what it's for, but I, maybe I'll find the home for it one day. It probably started because my partner just said, okay, can you stop buying things? So I said, um, 
okay, well, I'm actually, I'm making things out of them. I'm going to do a show um, and I'll just sort of... Well, better do a show then. Yeah. So it really came about kind of by accident. But I actually, I had, I'd been making furniture and things for myself. Um, so I just thought, okay, I'll just take it to the to another level. And it, it, it's just a nice counterpoint, you know, to sitting there work, working on a computer with yeah. words all day to actually go and sort of physically do something. To me, they just go together always, and it's just one and the same thing. I'm interested as well in the idea of colour, and it just made me think of the Anish Kapoor owning the blackest black thing. Well, I'm no, sure that you... was that was, was the that the thing. thing. Yeah, yeah, that was. It was. It was a strange thing. I mean, like all books, you know, you it's like a little alchemy of different things happening at the same time. And around the same time that I had seen the Giorgione exhibition, and I was so struck by the color and by this kind of moment in you know Venetian art, the fact that you know from that moment Venetian art sort of slightly took over. So I saw that, and at the same time, I think I I can't remember if it was an interview with Anish Kapoor or it was about him, uh, but it was about the Vanta Black, the Black is Black, it swallows 99.96% of light or something, I can't remember that figure, and how it started this little war. The, the, the artist Stuart Semple made the pinkest pink and then put it, he put it on his website and said, can be purchased by anyone but Anish Kapoor. Yeah. Uh, and it was... <laughs> the playfulness be... about it is quite fun, isn't it? You know, when it happened, and I think that that responsiveness, but... It was, a, I, it was, I didn't know how serious it was. I didn't know how much of a sort of stunt it was, but it made me think, oh God, colour, yeah, it's got a value. And I thought of the, the Eve Klein blue and all the, uh, mm. you know, the sort of different arguments over colour and then I I thought in terms of the renaissance and I knew uh as I said about ultramarine and and ultramarine was called that because it was like beyond the sea and it was this sort of thing that you was just beyond people's reach and it was so expensive more expensive than gold and imagine that argument at a time when your kind of life actually depended on it possessing or obtaining a colour could kind of be a life or death situation so yeah it's a great book it's a lovely read I'm not going to give it away it it's a lovely combination of all these ideas that we've been talking about today so go and have a search for the color storm um when I was reading just checking yesterday um I've got a couple more questions for you one do you read the Amazon reviews because this is something that often comes up for artists too is like, you know, how do you take on board? There are some great reviews. First question, do you ever read them or do you just avoid looking? No, I, I do. I do read them. I mean, I, I the, the sort of the bad reviews, I read like kind of squinting, like, like, oh no, do I want to hear? But actually, when you read the good ones, which thankfully most of them are, yeah um, yeah they think okay well, well I'm, I'm doing it's it landing. right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's lovely that they, they're getting exactly what, they're sort of getting things in exactly the way you you set out. Yeah. If anyone has a negative comment, I often find it really interesting. There are a lot of lovely, as you say, a lot of really lovely reviews of people who clearly got a huge amount from it, found it, you know, really uh, different kind of book and enjoyed it. And then I think there was just one that was kind of like, it's all right, it's not brilliant. <laughs> you just think, I know. why would you bother? 
I know. You know it's I know. just that, really that... funny because we get that too. And it's like, okay, fine. It's not for you. <laughs> yeah, no, it's bizarre. It, it's bizarre what takes people online, you know. Yeah. But I mean, <laughs> I remember when, uh, when I did my first book, The History Keepers, and there was a review in The Guardian. He basically, he 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 liked it, but he was a bit sort of sniffy about some things and he made some comment he said you know I'd used a phrase and it was such a cliche phrase and he was absolutely right and I, I think I I think he gave an example he said I said as flat as a pancake I don't I can't remember ever writing such a thing yeah. but it made me think and I thought I will never write a phrase like that ever again because that's unacceptable you can't just trot out someone else's you know phrase in that way and that was like 12 years ago I would never I would never write you know those linguistic little ticks that's a really interesting thing though because in terms of the process is that something that you kind of pull out like with a fine tooth comb at the end or or when you're actually doing the right like is that something that you're very conscious of when you're writing like literally as the words are coming out of your fingers or out of your brain do you go oh, stop whoop no, yeah. I do now. I would now. And actually, yeah. as, a, as a result of that one tiny comment in, in what was otherwise a very good review, um, I just thought, OK, no, he's actually right. There's, there's, there's no room for sort of cliche in mm. any form. Mm. Uh, the book wasn't cliched at all. But even if a phrase is cliched, then it doesn't mm. deserve to be there. Everything needs to be kind of thought of fresh. Mm. One more question on colour. I have a theory that everybody has a kind of colour personality mm. of, a, of a group of colours that they are naturally drawn towards that feel right for them. Yeah. yeah. It's something that I'm, I'm interested in exploring a little bit more. If I, I'm not going to ask you what your favourite colour is, therefore, because I don't think colours exist in isolation. I think they always exist in companionship and in contrast with other colours. How would you describe it? Changes. And it changes, it does. It changes seasonally. I think it changes yeah. in time. But I also think if we look at, you know, what we're naturally drawn to, like maybe if you and your a friend went into a shop or an art gallery or picked out clothes, you would mm. naturally pick one thing over another. Mm. What yeah. are you drawn to? Well, I think it is a. I think it is a phase I'm going through, but I've become obsessed by greens, <laughs> but strong greens. I mean, right. greens, not pastel greens. The opposite. Um, Chartreuse, zingy. Yeah, emerald chartreuse. What I call apple greens. So it's kind of real green greens. Obviously, a lot of the pieces found themselves going in that. Yeah direction you know it's talked about a lot in the book what artists are drawn to you know of these famous artists what colors they're drawn to and what colors they think kind of cheapen things um but i think you're absolutely right i think everyone has colors and their you know the emotional reaction to them i mean i'm i'm yellow as well as the other color of the moment for me um but again strong i don't know i want to say chinese yellows but yes those kind of really rich sort of full-bodied uh, real kind of intense zingy like you can taste them yeah yeah and uh, I, I those the green and yellow are very much the sort of living spring colors I guess uh for me now but then there'll be times when I'm like dark dark almost black purple will appeal 
But yeah, it's it's so fascinating. People go into rooms and their reaction is so emotional mm. and they don't, it's hard to tell if it's to do with your history with particular colours, if it's like smells where you're, reminds you of something. Um, but also, it also depends on the actual, the way the colour is presented. Like a pink marble would be ravishing, but pink in some other form, kind of just painted pink, might be sort of sickly. Once you start looking, you know, as I have, obviously, once you really start looking at, uh, at colours, you really, you just, you see more, it's like looking at the stars, you sort of see more and more subtlety and kind of detail in everything. But again, I just want to come back to what the point you made earlier about how, you know, the book is set in the 16th century and how drab everything would have been and so if you're in Venice and suddenly kind of boats are arriving with kind of minerals and you've got these uh, little sparks of color coming off them and you're seeing these paintings in oil paint uh, and there are sort of silks from China that people are wearing in the street in these sort of intense colors I mean it, it, you know the color the color and the non-color would have been so stark you know yeah. it would have been incredible to to see that and as you say we are just now we take it all for granted we're surrounded by color all the time but yeah it's lovely to put yourself in that position of imagining what it would have been like well it's very atmospheric and it's a great read thank you so much for your time today um it's been lovely to talk to you and and kind of push you in different directions and hear more about your story and how it's all linked together what's next Oh, um, well, I've started on a book, which actually, interestingly, I started with a title. I saw this, it was like a sort of 50s textbook, and it was called English Glass, and it had this brilliant, like, graphic on it. And I'd been thinking of an idea about, essentially about a sort of uh, a loner, someone who, who lost his family in a sort of tragic accident very early on, but was left with this incredible collection of English glass, but hasn't really faced the world. He ends up having to sort of adopt this kind of young young boy and they kind of go on this extraordinary journey. And it's 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 a set in the modern day, but it's it's kind of a lot about history as well. You know, the glass, this glass that survived for a thousand years, you know, from the court of whatever. It's an incredible journey it's taken to survive all that time. Our souls and our survival so yeah that's... so you're off you're off creating new worlds already does that mean you're going to be doing glass blowing next oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well we will obviously uh, keep an eye out for that coming but right now the book to go and find is the color storm um there aren't very many books i find um that talk about art and artists kind of in this way so that's why i was really keen to talk to you and um wish you all the best with the paperback version of it i know the hardback has done very well and it's it's lovely to see it out in the world so thank you so much thank you bye-bye everyone we'll see you next week 